Grab your Bible and open up to Romans chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, the rushers at the front right here, they're going to walk towards the back, and they love to put a Bible in your hand. If you don't have one, just slip your hand up in the air. We'll make sure one gets across to you. And uh, this is our gift to you today. If you've come without a Bible, you don't own a Bible, please take this home. We would love to give you a copy of God's Word. Pray this would be a blessing to you. We are finishing off our little Advent series, our mini-series. We've launched out of Genesis 3.15, and we're not going to be going there today. It should be familiar to most of us, but if it's not, let me just refresh your memory and remind you of what took place in Genesis 3.15. After Adam and Eve had sinned and rebelled against God, God delivers a curse to the serpent. And as He speaks to the serpent, He delivers to all of humanity the promise of the Bible, the promise through which all the other promises will be filtered or in many ways unfold through this one promise. He says to the woman, he says to the serpent, excuse me, that he will put enmity between your offspring and her offspring, between her and you. And then he says about the offspring of the woman, you will bruise his heel and he will crush your head. There is a promise given here of peace that what has been ruined by sin can be made right by God. And Advent is ultimately, as we kind of come to this final uh, theme of Advent, Advent really is landing us in this place where we look at the peace that only Christ can provide. And the peace that is given to us through Jesus Christ is not a cheap kind of peace that closes its eyes to the chaos and the brokenness of the world, to the trials of our own lives. It's a peace that meets us in the midst of all those realities and acknowledges that Christ has entered into our chaos. That's what happens in the promise of Genesis 3.15. There was a promise that there is one who's going to now enter into the chaos and who's going to receive the brunt of all that chaos for us. He's going to deal with it. And Romans chapter 5 emphasizes this in a unique way. If you know anything about Romans chapter 5, you know that it upholds Adam as the, the, the picture of humanity, the one in whom we all fell, and Jesus, the head of, of a new race of humanity, a renewed or new creation. In Romans 5, we see the sin and fall of Adam and the peace and reconciliation of Jesus. And I want you to to see that in many ways, Genesis 3.15 is actually in view in the mind of the Apostle Paul. In fact, look at Romans 5, verses 12 and 13. You see the focus of Paul here. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, he's speaking of Adam, obviously, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam and who was a type of of the one who was to come. He says here that sin came into the world through one man. And through this one man, as sin came in, death came through sin, and so death spread to all men. 
Now remember, before the fall, all Adam and Eve knew in the garden was peace. That's all they knew. They, they, they only knew peace with one another. They only knew peace with God. They had no understanding of anything but peace. But now, in an instant, when sin enters the world, all they know is enmity and war. There's separation, there's distance, but it's, it's deeper than that. There, there is a kind of war that's been taking place. There, there was a war of rebellion against the kingship of God that took place in the garden. There is a battle now that's going to be waged until the return of Jesus Christ between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. From this point on, all the world and all of humanity is going to be plunged into a war. Enmity replaces peace. Enmity between the serpent, the offspring of the the serpent and the offspring of the woman. Enmity between human beings, between Adam and Eve, and between every human being that will ever live. But most importantly, enmity between humanity and God. You see, in Adam, all of humanity is at war with God. But the promise of Jesus invites us to experience first true peace with God. That's the first point I want to bring to your attention. The promise in Genesis 3.15, the promise of Jesus invites us to experience true peace with God. And I want to back up to the beginning of Romans and just look at the first couple of verses for this first point. The Apostle Paul says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Paul is describing here a true peace with God. He uses the term justified, that therefore we're now justified. Now, in Paul's case, he's speaking to people who already believe the gospel. And so he's speaking uh, to those who have, in a past sense, been justified with God. Now, the way I like to describe or define justification, it's a very simple understanding. You see, every one of us as human beings need to be justified. Here's how you can think of that. We need to be made just as if we've never sinned and just as if we've always obeyed. That's what it would mean to be justified, to be made right with God. We must be viewed by God as have never have sinned and as have always obeyed the word of God, the will of God from the heart. But you see, the problem that Paul has addressed all the way through Romans up to this point is that there is a lack of peace that we all experience And it's a result of sin. It's a result of unrighteousness. We are not righteous. We are full of sin. We have no righteousness of our own. Our problem is that in our sin, we know, I think, inherently, at least most of us do, that we need to be made right. And so I think in our flesh, we often seek peace apart from God. This is, this is what fallen humanity does. We, we long for peace. We feel the turmoil and the chaos in our soul. We see it all around us, and we seek for peace. It's a part of what God has made us to do. The problem is not that we seek peace. It's how we seek peace. And the invitation of Jesus calls us to seek peace first and not through independence. 
I think this is often how humanity seeks peace. We seek it in independence, apart from God, yes, but apart from other people. We, we want to be self-sufficient. We want to try to produce our own self-worth. I don't need anyone else. I can find myself by myself. I don't need kids, a spouse, a family, or God. In fact, all of those can become obstacles because I have to use independence as a way of finding my peace. Some of us are good at trying to establish peace apart from anybody else, and when we don't find it there, we often seek peace in intimacy, but the invitation of Jesus is to seek peace not, not through intimacy. We never find peace through intimacy in a human sense, in human relationships. But that's often where we run to. We we run to find peace in others or through others. Maybe we run, instead of running away from others, we run to a spouse or to our children or to our friends, or we try to establish a community into which we can feel a sense of belonging, believing that some kind of belonging, any sort of belonging to a group will produce peace in our soul. We see this in our world, but if we're honest, we often see it in our own lives. But we cannot find true peace through intimacy with people. We can find, yes, a a taste of peace, a glimpse of peace, a temporary sort of peace. But when we don't find it in others, we begin to question who we are, believing that our peace will come in forging our identity. But the invitation of Jesus is to find peace not not through identity, not through independence, not through intimacy, not through identity, at least not through an identity established by ourselves. Some of us are trying to find peace by throwing ourselves into our work, our roles, our possessions, our accomplishments, our reputation. There's this sense of I, I am what I do, or I am what I have, or I am what I accomplish, or I am what other people think of me. But the problem with that path is that it's never ending. It's never enough. We are separated from the only one who can give us true peace because as we've already read in our Advent readings, he himself is supposed to be our peace. And everything we run after to find peace is ultimately trying to show us by the grace of God that that's not where it can be found. You see, peace with God is is not first and foremost a subjective statement, and I think that's often what we long for. We long for this feeling of peace. You know, like, like I feel at peace with God. I, I, I feel an inner sense of calm when I'm out in nature, or I, I, just, I feel closer to God when I'm in a church building instead of sitting in my, my living room. Now, you see, it's first and foremost an objective statement of fact. Peace with, let me say that again, peace is first and foremost an objective statement of fact. It's a a status that has changed. And what the scriptures teach is that I, I am no longer an enemy but a friend. It's a categorical change in our disposition to God and our relationship with God. I am no longer at war with God but at peace 
with God. But the problem that we face is, again, this, this, this can only come a certain way. And, and let me just show you finally here that it doesn't come. It's not through initiative, okay? I think this is one of humanity's greatest problems. We believe it's on us to establish peace with God. We must take the initiative, and we foolishly believe that we can accomplish, and I think maybe some even here in this room, they they already believe they experience true peace with God when the reality is there is no peace between you and God. There are many who live their lives with a perceived peace. Wrongly believing that they have appeased God's righteous wrath, maybe by their own good works, right? I've I've done a lot of good things. I I hear people say this all the time. You know, one of the questions I love to ask people is, how do you know that you're right with God? Or or I like to put people on the spot, you know, and to say, hey, one day you're going to die. Imagine you're standing before God. What is your hope right now? What would you say? to God. How do you know you are right with God right now? And and inevitably, you want to know what people default to? Well, I think I'm pretty good. I've done a lot of good things. I'm not as bad. This is a classic, right? I'm not as bad as so-and-so. I'm not as bad as Hitler. If Hitler's your standard, okay, you got a big problem. We rely on our own self-righteousness. Many, listen, many, many people rely on a religious, an, an external religious practice, okay? I, I think this is the scary part, okay? Every religion in the world, apart from Christianity, promotes a works righteousness. Do you realize that? Every single religious system in the world is what makes Christianity so unique, Every other religious system, if you boil it down, it's works righteousness. You must do. You must become. You must offer up. You must produce the righteousness. You take the initiative. It's all on you. It's all about what you have done. But that's a big problem. There's no way we can produce enough, do enough, be enough for God to accept us and approve of us. There's nothing we could do to appease God's righteous wrath and anger. In, uh, at the start of, of World War II, many of you know this story, but a British Prime Minister, Neville Chamberlain, he was the Prime Minister before Winston Churchill. Um, he had believed that he could, speaking of Hitler, uh, give Hitler what he wanted to avoid any conflict with him that he could appease the wrath and fury of Hitler. And, and there's this uh, chilling historical moment. You can, you can watch the video of this. It's, it's unbelievable. Neville Chamberlain, he returns from Munich, and he steps off an airplane. He had been meeting in Munich with, with Hitler, and he smiles to the cameras, and he's waving a piece of paper in his hands with Hitler's signature on it, confidently declaring that he had secured peace for our time. And in a similar way, many people naively seek peace with God through their own initiative. And sadly, this, this is going to happen to a lot of religious people. And Matthew 7 is so clear on this, right? There's many religious people in this world who are going to stand before Jesus one day. Many, maybe even professing Christians who are going to stand before Jesus one day, and they're going to say, Lord, look what I did in your name. Lord, I, I cast out demons in your name. I prophesied in your name. 
I did many mighty works in your name. They're going to appeal to their religious activity. They're going to appeal to signs of powerful religious activity, believing that that is an indication that they are right and at peace with God, only to hear the words, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who work lawlessness. That's a staggering statement. How many countless people are going to try to stand before Jesus on the final day and try to plead their own righteous religious activity, their own good works, only to find out then, when it's too late, that it was never enough, it could never be enough? This is the idea that Paul has spent four chapters in Romans just obliterating. We, we could not appease God. There's nothing we could do to bring about true peace with God. Only God could appease God. That's the answer the Bible gives. Only God could appease God. Only God could assuage the wrath and anger of God. Only God could propitiate divine wrath. Only God could absorb it. Only God could deal with it. No human being could possibly deal with that. Only God. And that's why, listen, at Christmas, this is so, so helpful for us to remember. It's not through independence. It's not through intimacy. It's not through identity. It's not through initiative. It is only through incarnation. Only through incarnation. If only God could do it. This is, this is the message of Christmas. Only God could do it. God must come and do it. That's what Christmas is all about. God came to do what humanity could never do, and that's why the promise of Jesus invites us, secondly, to embrace total peace through God. Verse 2 says, Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into His grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And I just want to launch out of here, and I want to move as quickly to verse 6 through 11, where it explains how it is this peace was, this peace was accomplished for us. But just, just notice again what Paul says, that through Jesus, we have obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand. I want you to remember that scene of Matthew 7, where people stand before Jesus Christ, pleading their own righteousness. Here, it's the opposite. Here there are people standing, but not in their own righteousness, not upon their own works. They're standing because of faith, and they're standing in His grace. You see, it wasn't just, this is, this is incredible to consider, it wasn't just that I was at war with God in my sin. I want you to remember, He was at war with me, okay? We picked the fight. But he didn't throw the weapons down. He wasn't backing off. Until his righteous anger was satisfied, the reality for every person is we could never safely get near God. We couldn't draw near to him. We couldn't know the intimacy of his presence. For Paul, one of the things you see over and over again in the Bible is that grace and peace, they always go together. You notice that's Paul's customary greeting? Grace and peace to you. He, he says it so frequently. He can't separate these two ideas in his mind. They always go together. To stand in grace is also, think about this, to stand in peace. 
Perfect peace, total peace, means this, that we have complete and total access to God. That's what he says here in verse 2. We have access. We've obtained this access. He he says it like this in Ephesians chapter 2 and and chapter 3. I'll put them on the screen for you. He says, for through him, Jesus Christ, we have access in one spirit to the Father. He says a little later in in chapter 3, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. There it is. Ties it to faith. You see, in our sin, we couldn't get any further away from God, but in His grace, we can't get any closer. Before, I stood under God's wrath, but now I stand in God's grace. I have been taken, so to speak, by the hand into the throne room and brought into grace, undeserved blessing, without limit and without condition. And the peace that I experience is being allowed to be in the very presence of God without being destroyed. Notice that this status is embraced by faith. Paul says that it's by grace through faith that we are saved. If I can say it like this, total peace, total objective peace with God comes not from our behaving a certain way, but by believing a certain truth. The truth about God's love for us. The truth that God loved us so much that he would send his own son to come for us. That's what we celebrate at the birth of Jesus. The incarnation proves, in a sense, that God God loves us. He's faithful to his promises. He's come for us. Paul picks up this idea. Look at verse 6. He says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Listen, scripturally speaking, peace and reconciliation are synonyms. When it comes to our relationship with God, the fact that we are reconciled proves and demonstrates that we have peace with God. But I want you to see what Paul says to us here is he says, listen, there's there's faith required. You must embrace by faith this reality. In order to experience peace, you have to know who God is, what he's done for you. And and I love that he emphasizes here love. He wants you to see how much God loves you. And in many ways, that's what the Christian faith is all about. At the heart of the Christian faith is this idea that God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son. I want to just remind you, I think contrary to what many people believe, love is not first and foremost about what we feel. It's about what we know. And it's, it's what we know that then impacts how we feel and experience God's love. The gospel reminds us not of how lovable we are, but how loving God is. 
I love, I love this statement by Tim Keller. Tim Keller says, the gospel says you are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe, but more accepted and loved than you ever dared hope. So here's the question as we look at this, this portion of the text. The question is, is, how much then does God love you? What must I believe about God's love? I mean, mean, show me the degree of God's love. And the degree of love is measured here, according to Paul, partly by the costliness of the gift from the giver and partly by the worthiness or the unworthiness of the beneficiary, the recipient. So think of it like this. The more the gift costs the giver and the less the recipient deserves it, the greater the love is seen to be. That's the equation that he gives here. Let me give you that again. The more the gift costs the giver and the less the recipient deserves it, the greater the love is seen to be. So let's just work through this equation then according to Paul. Who is the gift? What's the worth or value of the gift? The gift is Jesus Christ. Right in the incarnation, we celebrate that Jesus came into this world, a, a baby born in a manger, but what we understand is this is not some ordinary baby. I mean, every baby is precious and valuable in the sight of God, amen? Okay, but, but this is not just a little child. It's not just a human child. This is God wrapped in flesh. And if you were to put a value on God, I mean, how many zeros would you have to put behind a number? infinite. You couldn't think of something that has the kind of worth, the kind of value that that Jesus Christ has, God himself. Listen, everywhere you read in scripture, he he is described as being, dwelling in unapproachable light. He is holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is filled with his glory. He is beyond our wildest imaginations. We must be shielded from the glimpse of his glory head on. Anybody who comes in direct contact with, with his glory passes out. There are angels in heaven. We read this last week. They have, they have wings covering their eyes where they hover around the throne room and they declare his praises day and night, but they can't even look at his glory. That's how awesome he is. I mean, it's, it's a worth and a value that we cannot calculate. That's the gift that God gives to humanity. The eternal value and beauty of Jesus Christ. Now, the worth of the gift is further emphasized, as we've said, by the unworthiness of the recipients. So, if we're going to be faithful to this text here, I just want you to notice four statements that Paul makes to describe those for whom Christ died. Now, look at what it says here. The strongest, the prettiest, the wisest. Everybody should be looking down going, that's not what it says. What version is he reading from? Uh, Look look what it says here, okay? Look at verse 6. The weak, the powerless. Well, it's got to get better than that. Verse 6, the ungodly. Okay, that's not great. Verse 8, sinners. All right, that's pretty bad. Verse 10, enemies. You see how he piles up these terms? You're weak and powerless. You're ungodly. You're sinners. And to cap it all off, your enemies. Those are the recipients. So you see, God proves his love for us by defining the cost, the unfathomable worthiness of Christ, contrasted by the utter unworthiness of humanity. 
And if we're honest with ourselves, the gap here couldn't be any further. You, you couldn't get a bigger gap. We understand, listen, someone giving their life for someone who is more worthy than them. I think, I think there's a sense, a human sense, where we're like, okay, I mean, that would be hard, but it makes a little, a little bit of sense. Or even to give our life for somebody who is decent, but I want you to see this. This is crazy. Somebody of infinite value giving themselves for somebody who's weak, ungodly, a sinner, and an enemy. And maybe to help maybe put this in some perspective, I want you to think right now about the most despised person in your life. Hopefully you don't have many of those. Maybe, maybe um, the person who has hurt you the most, the person who's caused the most amount of pain, harm, damage, abuse. Maybe it's the person that you've struggled to forgive or you're constantly having to go back to the throne of grace and, and ask God for help to forgive And if you don't have that, praise the Lord, but imagine for a moment that you are a parent, and imagine you only have one child, and imagine someone took that child, and they imprisoned them, they tortured them, they humiliated them, and then they murdered them. And imagine trying to love that person. Imagine... Imagine being willing to give your life for that person. For this is what we, in our sin and rebellion, have done to God's only Son. I, I, that, that line, doesn't it catch you? Every time I sing that, that line in that hymn, it was my sin that held him there. I cannot, I cannot read, I cannot read the gospel accounts, I cannot read about those the, the, the men who hung Jesus on the cross, without those words ringing in my own mind, without being reminded of Colossians 2, which says that it was, it was my certificate of debt that was nailed for the cross. It wasn't just wicked men that did it. It was me. It, it was my wickedness. It was my sin. It was my rebellion. It was my rejection. It was my unwillingness to let him be my king. That's what we have done, but... But this is what God in his love has done for us. And if you embrace his love in Christ, then you get total peace through Christ the Son. You get the Prince of Peace. And you get to be brought back into relationship with God. It's total because, listen, all of your sin has been paid for. This is the awesome news. This is why it's total peace. It's not partial peace. It's it's not just a, a glimpse or a taste of peace. It's total peace because all of your sin was paid for and all of his righteousness was given to you. It's, it's a total package. It's absolutely complete. Nothing can be taken away, and nothing needs to be added. And that's why verse 11 says, More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You say, what am I supposed to do with this? Paul says it right there. Rejoice. Rejoice. Praise the Lord for the reconciliation he has given you I mean, what a time for us as Christians to rejoice. What a time for us to gather together, to unite our hearts and unite our voices, to remember the costliness of the gift and the unworthiness of the recipients, and then to turn and realize that God has done it all. We have been given total peace with him, reconciled to the Father through Jesus Christ. And if that's what you have now, 
Then Jesus invites us, thirdly, listen, to extend timeless peace for God. And I want you to flip forward to 2 Corinthians. I want to I launch out of this picture of reconciliation that Paul ends with there in verse 11. And I want to, I this is a bit of a, a strong application for us, because if we know this peace, then there's certain kinds of responses that are required. If we have received reconciliation, as Paul says in Romans 5, then our natural response should be to rejoice. We should sing with all of our hearts. We should praise Him. But I think one of the things that ought to flow out of this, scripturally speaking, is that praise Him, yes, yes, but it can't stop there. That's like, that's like the natural response to, you know, okay, so your team wins the World Cup. You want to know who won? I'm just kidding. I won't do that. Right? What do you do? You're like, you celebrate. This is awesome. Okay, but then what do you do? You go tell everyone. And I won't do that right now. But again, that you can't help but talk about what you love. That's the point, right? You can't help but speak about what excites your soul, what brings joy to your heart. And nothing should bring more joy, more delight to the heart of a believer than the peace that has been established with God. Amen? Okay. But we struggle with this. Right? We do what Jesus said not to do. We, we, we take our light, and what, what, what he says, don't hide it under a basket. I think many of us are often guilty of going like, ah, okay, well, I, I like my light, and I want some people to see it, but uh, I don't want it to burn too brightly. Because if it burns too brightly, right, it's a little bit costly. Maybe it's a little, it's a little bit uncomfortable. It's a little bit inconvenient. It's going to be a little, bit, a, a little bit of a problem for me. And yet what we see here is a strong exhortation to proclaim. Five times the term reconciliation is used here in rapid succession. And, and I'll just, I'll start at verse 16 and then we'll just, I'll, we'll emphasize the word reconcile or reconciled. He says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. This is the uh, biography of every Christian, okay? If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You have been given new life, a new heart, new desires, new affections, new power, new purpose. What is that purpose? All this, by the way, is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And look at this, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I'm not sure there's a better scripture verse in the Bible than that. 
The ministry of reconciliation, as it's described in verse 19, is that Christ, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And I, I just want you to notice this, because this, this takes a little bit of pressure off you, so I want, I want to make sure you have the right kind of pressure, not the wrong pressure. Notice this, reconciliation is not something we do, it's something God has accomplished, okay? Whew. Can you imagine we had to reconcile people to God? But the ministry of reconciliation then is not telling people to make peace with God, but telling them, listen, this is awesome, that God has made peace with you. This is incredible. As a result of that, what God has done for us is now to be proclaimed through us. This is, this is staggering, okay? God says, listen, I want to save you, I want to reconcile you, and then I want you to be sent out on my behalf. I want you to think right now how you were reconciled to God right now. How was it that you personally, if you're in Christ today, how was it that you personally came to be reconciled to God? It just happened magically? You just woke up one day and just said, I think I'm reconciled to God. No, that that's not happened to any single person in this room. You want to know how it happened? Somebody, by the grace of God, came to you with the good news. And they told you, they told you the message that you were a sinner. You had rebelled against God. But in God's love and grace, he came into this world as a baby. God wrapped himself in flesh and he, he lived a perfect life that you can never live he died on a, on a cross of wood to pay for your sins. He did it all. He took the initiative. He willingly went to the cross, and he suffered on that cross of wood, and your certificate of debt was nailed to the cross as he was nailed to the cross. And then he rose gloriously from the grave, conquering sin and death, and is exalted right now, seated at the right hand of the Father where he rules and reigns, and he did it all for you. You, wanna, you did nothing. But if you believe that message, if you believe that message, you can have peace with God. You see, loved ones, listen, somebody came and told you that truth. And by the grace of God, God, by his spirit, just broke your heart right open. He caused you to see your sin, to see your rebellion. He gave you eyes to see and ears to hear. The, the eyes of your heart were open so that you could receive the grace of God and turn from your sin and grab hold of the good news of Jesus Christ. And, and Romans 10 tells us, listen, that if, if people don't go, guess what? If people don't go and people aren't saved, if people don't tell, guess what happens? People don't get saved. Again, I thought you believed in the sovereignty of God. I do. I 100% believe in the sovereignty of God. But listen, God is sovereign over the ends, and he is sovereign over the means. And the means that God has sovereignly chosen to save sinners is you and it's me. Amen? All right. So church, listen to this. This is a privilege. This is, this is not just some burden we have to carry. This is the privilege of our life. This is what we will get to offer to God one day. We will get to offer him the fruit of our lives, which Lord willing will be this. Many, many souls won for Jesus Christ. We declare, be reconciled to God, receive God's offer. And, and, and if you're reading this, I hope you sense this. There is built into this passage a sense of urgency. Did you feel that? 
It's like, like we declare, we're ambassadors, we're heralding a message, be reconciled to God. It's like this, this, this plea, we plea, we implore, he uses that one, we implore people. You're like, why is he so urgent with this message? I wanna, I wanna tell you why, because here's, listen church, this is really, really important, because eternity is forever. I know, that's, that's what eternity is. <laughs> I get that. But you need, eternity is forever. Where, where people go when they die, when they leave this earth, is forever. This quote by C.S. Lewis has always just stuck in my heart and mind. Here's what he says, listen. He says, the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. God has dealt with the sin that separated. God has taken the punishment we deserve. God has done everything, but God offers it to all, and he offers it to all through us. We want to give people a timeless peace, an eternal peace. We want to call them to be reconciled with God, to turn to Jesus, to see that he was made sin so that we could be made righteous. Through us, he is extending this peace. We get to and we must proclaim this to the world. And, and I just, again, I know we major on this every year, but listen, we can major on this every Sunday, but now is such an opportune time. It's such an opportune time. There's so many hurting people. There's so many people who are looking for peace. There's so many people who are willing to walk into a church for the first time, maybe the only time of the year, and who knows how God might use you and your boldness and courage, your willingness, listen, to go out on a limb and invite somebody to church, to invite them into your home. Who knows how God might work through you this Christmas season to help someone be reconciled to God. Finally, and this is a very quick point, Jesus invites us through this promise to expect triumphant peace from God. Genesis 3.15, it is a promise of victory. By definition, it's a picture, it's a microcosm in a sense of the ending of the war, if I could use that analogy. All right, this battle is going to go on, and this offspring of the woman, that heel is going to be bruised, he's going to be wounded, he's going to be hurt. But the end of the war is coming, and we know that because... The offspring of the woman is going to mortally wound the head of the serpent. It's going to crush the head of the serpent. You see, it, it's a promise of victory in this war. It's a promise of peacetime, a full peace, a final peace, a triumphant peace that can only be accomplished through this conquering king. 
It's the promise of the one who would come into the, the cursed and chaotic and confused world. And, and he's pointed to all throughout the scriptures. We read this in our Advent reading, right? Isaiah chapter 9, for unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and church, what's this one? Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of the peace, there will be no end. There's a day coming where where full and final triumphant peace will rule the day. And and so naturally, when Jesus is getting ready to come on the scene at, at his first coming, we're told in Luke that he is coming to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the declaration at his arrival, according to Luke, was, was this. It filled the skies, right? Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Even the response of an old man who, who sees Jesus. He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. And as we wait in peace for his second coming, we are assured that one day we will experience a triumphant peace from God. Paul in Romans 16, 20, he says this. This is the most direct allusion to Genesis 3.15 in the New Testament. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I want you to crush Satan under my feet? Can you hear Paul say that if you're in Christ, you stand in his victory? His victory over Satan is your victory over Satan. When he crushes the serpent's head, he'll do so under the feet of his people. There's a victory over sin, death, and Satan that was begun at the cross, and it will be fully realized at his return. And as we prepare our hearts now to to celebrate the Lord's table, I want to read an extended portion as we do that. We're going to take the lights down, and uh, we're going to just settle our hearts. You can can close your Bibles. It's rare that I say that in a service, but... But I, I, here's I, my purpose is I, I want you just to be soaking in what we've just read, and I want you to hear this. I was reading, just finished reading with my youngest son um, this past week. Uh, Kevin DeYoung has um, a Bible, a kid's storybook Bible that he wrote. It's called the Biggest Story Bible. And the, uh, the second to last chapter is based off of Revelation 20. And I, I read it, and I just, I, I haven't been able to shake it all week, and I just thought it would be fitting for us just to hear this. This is like... Bible story time with Pastor Ian. This is, this is so amazingly written and it's so relevant. Listen to what the, cha- the chapter title is this. Listen, the snake crusher wins. He says, ever since Adam's sin in the garden, it was certain that the slithering serpent would be struck down. Actually, even before that, forever and ever ago, there was no doubt that God would get his way and evil would be destroyed. But along the way, it didn't always look like the devil would lose. 
Didn't it look like the snake was crawling to victory when Cain killed Abel? When the Israelites were slaves in Egypt? When Aaron fashioned the golden calf? When everyone did what was right in his own eyes? When the prophets were ignored? When the priests led the people into sin? When the kings went from bad to worse? Even the best disciples couldn't help but wonder if God's word had failed when the snake crusher fell. The snake crusher did fall, and then he got back up again. He defeated death, he conquered the grave, he routed sin and the devil. But that was the beginning of the end for our scaly enemy. The devil hissed like a snake. Sometimes he roared like a lion. Even when his defeat was sure, even when his head was stomped, he still spread lies. He still hurled accusations. The day of his final doom had not yet come. But it will. You can count on that. It will most certainly come. That ancient serpent, the dragon, Satan, the tempter of Jesus, and the enemy of God's people, he will be thrown into the lake of fire, never to deceive or accuse again. All the wicked of the earth will stand before God's great white throne. The books will be opened, and all the sinister secrets of man's man's rebellion will be revealed. God will triumph over sin and death and the devil. There will be another book on that day, the book of life. And if anyone's name is not found in that book, for anyone who stood with the snake instead of believing in the snake crusher, he will join the devil in his doom. The judge of all the earth will do what is right. The bad guys will get what they deserve, and the good guys will get, well, not exactly what they deserve. That's the good news. But what they have been promised in Jesus, fire for God's foes and a wedding feast for God's people. That's what is coming. No doubt about it. The days of the snake are numbered. The victory of the snake crusher will last forever. I just couldn't say it any better than that. And you know, when we come to the Lord's table, that's one of the most powerful things that we remember together. We're in a war, but the good news is is we are on the winning side. If we are in Christ today, we have peace with God, and we have the guarantee of the promise that one day the snake crusher will come and put sin, death, and Satan to its final end. Amen? And we will sit at a wedding feast with our God and our Savior. We will enjoy intimacy with Him We will know his presence. We will know the purity of being with him. There will be no more sin, no more sorrow, no more more suffering. He will wipe every tear from our eye. We will only know peace forevermore.